hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, that they would not have been guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the whole beauty of your gospel, Lord, what you tell us about Jesus and how he has come for us. And Lord, but we also thank you for parts that tell us about what that's going to mean for us in the world if we remain faithful to him. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us strength and encourage us, help us to see the reality of where we're at, but also, Lord, we pray you would help us to embrace it um, for what it is, but also for for the beauty and the potential of everything that you have called us to do as we stand as witnesses in the world to your truth, Lord. So pray that you would be with us, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So there's two, I think, two big reasons why people hate the church, why the world hates the church. The first one is easier to accept, and that is hypocrisy. (laughs) One big reason people hate the church is when we're hypocrites, when we try to force people to do things that we don't even do, or we try to use political muscle to force Christians to live in a certain way that we don't even live, or, or we do something that is just obviously out of bounds with what we claim to believe, even though we're sinful and there's always that with it. There's the sense when we, we appear to be hypocrites to the world, and so that's one reason that the world hates us. That's it's easier to accept. It's something that we should really take ownership of and, 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 and work to not be hypocrites in that blatant way. Um, but there's another reason, second reason, why the world hates the church, and it's a much harder reason to accept. Harder, I think, harder for me at least, because I, have this, I just have this romantic idea that if we could just stop being hypocrites, if we could just stop trying to force people with political power to live in ways they don't want to live, if we could just get back to being the church and just 
humbly preach the gospel and go out and serve people and, and love people, that everything would be okay. That everybody would love us. It would be totally cool. Don't you think that? I mean, I think it all the time. I preach it sometimes. I'm like, we need to stop twisting people's arms and putting them in headlocks and, and just let people be and go back to being the church, preaching the gospel, loving people, serving the poor. If we did that, everything would be cool, right? Not so much. According to this passage, not so much. Let me read you. I'm going to read you a quote. It's from, this is from an article from Christianity Today. It was a few years ago about the group, the InterVarsity group that got kicked off of um, Vanderbilt College. And this is their, one, of the, one of the girls' reflections. She says, I thought I was an acceptable kind of evangelical. I'm not a fundamentalist. My friends and I enjoy art, alcohol, cultural engagement. We avoid spiritual cliches, buzzwords. We value authenticity, study, racial reconciliation, social and environmental justice. Being a Christian made me somewhat weird in my urban progressive context, but despite some clear differences, I had a lot in common with my unbelieving friends. We could disagree about truth, spirituality, morality, and and remain on the best of terms. And then, two years ago, the student organization I worked for at Vanderbilt University got kicked off campus for being the wrong kind of Christians. For me, it was revolutionary, a reorientation of my place in the university and in culture. The line between good and evil was drawn by two issues, creedal belief and sexual expression. If religious groups required set truths or limited sexual autonomy, they were bad, not just wrong, but evil, narrow-minded, and too dangerous to be tolerated on campus. It didn't matter to them if we were politically or racially diverse. It didn't matter if we cared about the environment. It didn't matter if we built homes for the poor. There was a line in the sand, and we were on the wrong side. And the reality is what she ran into, what she ran head into, was the reality that there are a lot of real lines in the sand um, that run contrary to what the world believes to be good. It's not even a matter anymore. We're long, we're past the days, culturally in our world, we're past the days when we disagreed on the right way to get to the same agreed upon good. That's not even, that's, that's not even on the table anymore. We now are a nation of, in our, in our context, America, United States, really California, Southern California, our context, there are two completely separate Versions of reality, metaphysical truths, what we believe about reality. And out of those two versions of truth are, na- are, are reasonably defined two completely different set of ethics, what's good, what's bad, even how to get to what's good and bad. And then out of those, com- two completely different moral sets or sets of moral belief. And so it's not, even a, qu- it's not a question anymore of, of the, you know, divergent ways to get to the same good. It's, there is two versions of good. And both sides believe that the other is evil. That's where we're at. And that's what she ran into head on being a Christian at Vanderbilt University. And I hate this. I hate this because I so want to be respectable. 
or respected, you know? I mean, I mean, seriously, for me, for a guy coming off of the street, out of the drug game, got into college, graduated college, got a master's degree, spent eight years in school, and finally I've got this shot in life of being a respectable guy, you know, being a guy that can, like, weigh in, one of the elders at the gate, you know, can weigh in on the topics of life and be, like, considered as, like, a, you know, a, a respectable guy in, in our culture. And the truth is, I can't. This, what this makes, if it gets out that I'm a Christian, what it means is that I am, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. I, and not just an idiot, I'm evil. Because I believe in repressing the sexual freedom and identities of people. That's not true, but that's how it's seen. And so I hate it. It's a big bummer. And the hard truth is that even if we did everything right, it still wouldn't be cool. The natural consequences of faithfully representing Jesus in the world is persecution. Period. So says Jesus right here. Some big, some small, different in different contexts, for sure. But what he's telling us here is that this is the state of existence that we're being called into when we're called into the church, when he saves us, when God chooses us out of the world. I have chosen you out of the world. When that happens, that we are being recreated into something so fundamentally different in what we value in our beliefs from the rest of the world that there is going to necessarily be persecution. It's just the way it is. And Jesus tells us this, this whole section is for these apostles and for us so that we won't be surprised by it, so that we'll know what the deal is and not be shocked when it happens or if it happens. And so the big idea, here's the big idea, the thesis is that since persecution is the norm for the faithful church, let's stop trying so hard to belong to the world and live for God instead. Since persecution is the norm for the faithful church, let's stop trying so hard to belong to the world and live for God instead. Look at that one piece at a time. First, since persecution is the norm for the faithful Christian church. Uh, Look at verse 18 and 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. One of the more memorable sermons of, of uh, that I of that, one of my best sermons I ever heard. Probably a better way to say it was at a convocation at seminary. The president of the seminary, Robert Godfrey, preached this sermon, kind of about this same thing. And he said, basically, he said, he said the whole world right now is having a giant party over the death of God and all the moral and sexual freedom that comes with that. And, and the, reason that, the reason that people are so angry at the Christian church is that the Christians are the only ones that are ruining the party for everybody by refusing to admit that it's true. <laughs> we're wrecking the part. We're wrecking everybody's party. 
We're wrecking everybody's party by not coming online and agreeing with everybody. Yes, God is dead, or if he is alive, we have nothing substantial to know about him, so we can just make him up as, whoever, as we go along so that he'll do whatever we want him to do. But Christians are the only ones that won't do that, and so we're wrecking it. Because what the world really wants, the fallen world, ever since the beginning, what it has wanted above all things is moral autonomy. Either the right to say what's good and what's wrong, what's good and evil, what's right and wrong, and then to live our lives by that distinction, or, and or, usually and or, uh, to, to be, present ourselves as morally perfect to God on our own merits. To have the autonomy to present ourselves to God on our own devices as, as worthy of his love. And, um, and that's the party that we're wrecking. There's a guy named Robert Riley. He's written that this delusion, which is what it is, this delusion that we can be autonomous morally and, and even, even physically from God. I mean, it's, it's a delusion because it, it, it runs against everything that we know experientially in life. We know that we are not able to be morally autonomous, that the morals we come up with cause destruction in life. When we, when we run it out, bad things happen. Experientially, we know that. It does not line up with how we know the world to be. It's a delusion everybody's trying to prop up because it sounds so much fun. Doesn't it sound fun? Well, the world thinks it sounds fun, and so everybody's trying to prop it up. Another author named Robert Riley has written that, that the delusion of moral autonomy, it requires, it requires a total buy-in from the culture. In other words, everybody has to say it's true because if anybody dissents, that person then stands as the witness to the, to, to the foolishness of it. And it, it, it doesn't let anybody buy into the delusion. And so it, anyone who stands against it must be eliminated. And that is what Jesus is running up against. That's what Jesus ran up against from the religious establishment of his day. He held up this giant mirror that said, you are not keeping the law as God intended. You are not keeping the law as a sense of worship and gratitude to God. You are keeping the law as a way of blowing yourselves up, making yourselves seem holy to each other uh, and, 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 and to the people below you specifically, making yourself seem that you're way better than you are. You could take Law of Moses and we could swap out almost anything in there, fashion, money, beauty, you name it. You could interchange all kinds of things in there. It's the same principle almost. Jesus holds up this mirror saying, you ain't all that. You ain't all that. And, and worse than that, among other things, his miracles proved without a doubt that he was the authoritative word from God. And so it wasn't such a case that that he was disagreeing with them or he was arguing with them and they didn't like what he was saying, it was they knew that what he said was true and they couldn't stand that it was true. They just couldn't stand it to be true. And so he had to be eliminated. And what Jesus is saying here, he's like, look, you got, I am going to the Father and when I'm gone, I'm going to send the helper to you, the paraclete. You are going to be, I'm, my presence with you is going to draw all this fire that I'm about to get. 
and you're going to go through the exact same thing. The more we look like Christ, the more we reflect Jesus into the world, um, the more we can expect the culture to try to silence us by any means necessary. So why is this important? What's the biggest reason he's telling us this? The biggest reason he's telling us this here in these first four opening verses is he just doesn't, he doesn't want the disciples to be surprised by it when it happens. He, when it, he doesn't want them to be so surprised and shocked by, you know, there's probably still some remnant in them of thinking, we're going to take over the world. He doesn't want them to be surprised when the world comes to, to war with them. And the same is true with us. He wants us to know that this is the reality that we live in, to have a rational, truthful, accurate representation of, of what it's like for us in the world. This is what we can expect so that we'll be able to operate properly in it, right? Last couple of days, our kids have been like going nuts, running, just, just going nuts. I don't know what happened. There's just the, dis- just the nut bug has hit, especially Victoria, and, and they've just been screaming, crying, just running Nisa into the corner and having come in and like rescue her, cut the duct tape off, free her, get her out of there. Uh, and Tori's like screaming off the top, yesterday, screaming at the top of her lungs because the most important thing in the world to her at that moment is that Robbie sits in that chair and that she has on his hat. Just unconsolable. And we're trying to like reason with her, you know? That's my first response, trying to reason with her. Well, Toria, why do you want Hannah's hat? Ah! Robbie doesn't want to sit. And it, it hit us. We're talking about this later. We're talking about the foolishness of trying to have a rational conversation with an emotional six-year-old. <laughs> Our kids, they're like little drunk people. There's the happy drunks, and then there's the mean drunk, and there's the angry drunk. They're cute, so that's not like adult, you know, it's not like, you know, adults when, they, when they're angry drunks. They're cute, so you deal with them, but that's what they are. When we realized that, it was like a paradigm in parenting for us. We're like, wow, they're little drunk people. They're irrational. We can't have these rational conversations with them. We need to realize what's up and act appropriately. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. That's the world we live in. It's not rational. The hatred for you, it is not rational. They know what you're saying is true. They just hate it. They hate it. And they hate Jesus, and so they hate you. So, big idea of this point is don't be surprised. We need to come to grips with reality. The church is different from the world because of the spirit within us. Uh, And so, we should expect that persecution is the norm for the faithful church. That's point one. Persecution is the norm for the faithful church. Point two. If that's true, let's stop trying so hard to belong to the world. Look at verse 26. Verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. 
I talked a little while ago about a book by a guy named Nick Ripkin called The Insanity of God. Great book. You should read this book. Um, he was a missionary in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a part of, of Africa that was blowing up. Tons of conversions. Then he got sent somewhere else to work in Somaliland where there was n- n- no Christians and Muslim warlords. The Muslim warlord to Christian ratio was a billion to one or thereabouts. You get the idea. Um, he tells a story he made. They finally, after laboring for years, they made four converts and then they all celebrated the Lord's Supper with these four converts. Uh, and then the next day, the local warlord came in and murdered all four of their converts. Specifically for the reason that their theory was, their solution was, don't kill the missionaries, kill everyone they convert. And that will discourage them and make them leave. And so that drove him on uh, this long journey where he traveled through 70 different countries interviewing all of these different Christians that have been persecuted, uh, heavy persecution, to find out how it is that you keep going. Is God at work in these areas where people are being persecuted um, in, in, in such grievous ways? Is God at work there, and how do you survive it as a Christian? And at the end, at the end, what he came up with and what he walked away from it with, the big takeaway for him, was just what we talked about, that persecution is normal. That for the Christian church, even in our day and age right now, and certainly throughout history, the norm for the Christian church has been persecution. And so he, he ends his book by, this, by this, this quote. After thinking on all this, he ends the quest like this about, you know, he set off on this goal to find out why, why is there persecution and how do, we, how do we hold up under it. And he ended with this. He said, perhaps the question should not be, why are others persecuted? Perhaps the better question is, why are we not? Now, granted, Somaliland is a lot different from Southern California. Amen? We need to be careful when we say persecution. There are no Muslim militias in Tijuana ready to sweep north and burn our homes down and lock us all in the church and set you on fire and crucify me and Nisa out in the front yard. That's probably not going to happen this week, although it happens in Sudan. Um, We're not going to be followed around by the secret police everywhere we go like we were in China. Um, But the question that he's asking here for us is, is, is that the only reason? Is that the only reason that we're not persecuted because this isn't an area of heavy persecution? Um, the question he's, he's presenting to us is not a rhetorical question. It's a real question. And the question that, he, it, that it asks of us, the hard question is, has persecution ever really touched me personally? And if not, why not? Maybe it's because you just lived a charmed life. Maybe not. Maybe it's because... Maybe it's because of other things. The thing is, when Jesus says here, the Holy Spirit is coming and he will be my witness and you will be my witnesses too, what he's saying is that we are the channel that the Holy Spirit uses to witness in the world. We are his witnesses after 
uh, in, after his ascension. The church, Christians, we are his witnesses on earth. And that necess- if that necessarily means persecution, and it does, we should be looking at our lives and saying, am I a witness? Am I really a witness for Christ? And if so, how am I a witness for Christ? Because we can get real easy caught up in a couple of different things. We can get caught up in Western materialism or some other thing and inadvertently end up becoming witnesses for something other than Jesus. Or we can buy into the whole private faith thing and become secret Christians and not really be a witness to anything. It's a harder question to ask. Um, It's a hard question to ask. It used to be a harder question to ask, but the question they used to ask, I remember Christians or preachers saying, saying, if Christianity was outlawed, would there be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> Meaning, would they be able to find witnesses who would say, yeah, that guy's a Christian. He used to talk about it. He tried to, he tried to witness to me, or I know, you know he was actually living, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't move in with his girlfriend. That guy's a nut job. Is there something, you know, uh, it used to be a harder question to ask, but now it's an easier question to ask because of social media, because we have now this power to really present ourselves to the world. Since we're talking about family secrets today, Nisa used to, before she met me, when she would date guys, she would go online and investigate them on their MySpace page and on their Facebook. MySpace, I'll, I'll tell you when, when we got married. She would go investigate them to see what, they're, you know, what, they're, what they were presenting to the world. Was it, was it consistent with what they professed at church? And she would go to guys' websites and find crazy stuff on there. These you know, guys that looked outwardly, they looked the part, but just a little digging behind the surface and found out that they were really very much worshiping other things and making it known for the world. I've got a, a buddy lives out of town right now, claims to be a Christian. His Facebook page is chock full of pictures of him and his girlfriend at the hotels that they stay at at the weekends. It's obvious that they're staying together. I don't know what they're doing, but it's presenting a picture of sexual immorality to the world that then non-Christians look at that and they go, look, see, the Christian is saying about it. They're just trying to make out, you know, they don't even, they don't even do it. It's a joke, and Jesus is a joke. Look at what they're doing. You know, it's what I'm not saying, what I am not saying is that you need to work on behavior modification to present a sunny face of morality to the world. That is not what I'm saying. That is not Christianity. And what I'm certainly not saying that you should be screaming at non-Christians who don't keep our ethic. But what I'm saying is, what is our, do, to people who are watching us, what, is our, what do our lives look like? Do our lives look like a fairly constant outflowing of visible praise and thanksgiving? A visible praise and thanksgiving to God for what he's done for us. When we speak, do we, do we freely speak about God? Do we freely like talk about what he's done for us when it's appropriate to do so. I don't mean you run up to the water cooler with a handful of tracks and start, you know, let me tell you about Jesus. I mean, in, in regular conversation, these things come up and we have opportunities to really share 
about God and what God has done for us and what God has done in our lives and why we benefited from these things um, and uh, the hope that we have within us. The hope that we have within us that we can share. Share with people. Is it visible? Is it an unmistakable testimony? Is our lives an unmistakable testimony of the glory of God? That's the question we've got to ask ourselves because everybody is watching. And really, Jesus has really called us to be witnesses in the world for him. The temptation that I think we face, one of them, I know the temptation I face, let me just speak for myself. And, and, and the girl that got kicked out of Vanderbilt University, you hear this in her story too. She um, and me have this underlying belief that if we wrap the message of the gospel inside this protective layer of progressive liberal language, that everything will be okay. Everyone will see how thoughtful and compassionate we are, and most importantly, everyone will see how culturally relevant Christianity is, and we will be accepted at very least as just another socially conscious group that gets along, that's on the same team. We're all in this together. And then we try to wrap the message inside of that rather than putting it on top. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. We, as, as Christians, should be very conscious of a lot of these things. But if that is the majority of what we're about, first of all, we're going to be sadly disappointed when people dig the gospel out of there and ask us, do you really believe this? You're out. But what it causes us to do is, is hide the biggest parts of the faith, the reality of our own sin the reality of, of Jesus and his sacrifice for us and the, uh, and the, and, and, and the offer of, of eternal life through Christ. That's what we're here to do. That's the message that we're called to witness to and how that has played out in our lives. And so here's the challenge. Here's the challenge I want to give to all of us from this part. Since, if, if, since it's true that even if we do everything right, even if we wrap our, if we perfectly contextualize the gospel, even if we wrap everything up in, in language that's, that's edible to, to pagans and whatnot, even if we try to do everything right, at the end of the day, when, when we talk about sin and death and the necessary atoning blood of Jesus, none of that's going to matter. And so if that's true, let's stop walking on eggshells. Let's stop walking on eggshells. Let's not, I mean, I'm not, this is not an argument to go out and be offensive. Please, don't hear that. This is not, this is an argument to be compassionate, to be compelling, to be winsome, to be gracious, to first go out and serve people in love, to earn an opportunity to speak. But in the context of all that, Let's stop walking on eggshells. Let's be out. Let's be Christian publicly in our whole life, in everything we do. Let it inform everything we do, all of our thoughts, how we do things, and let's give glory to God in everything we do, no matter what the arena is. There's this part in John eight twenty three. Jesus says to the Pharisees, 
He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Let's stop being ashamed about being from the world above. Let's take all the responsibility of that on us and to serve and to love people, but let's be who we are. That's the challenge. Let's be who we are and let people know about Jesus. So point two, let's just stop worrying so much about whether or not the world loves us. Let's stop trying so hard to belong to a world that we don't belong to. And instead, point three, let's live for God instead. Point three, let's live for God instead. Get verses 16, one through four. And I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus puts this at the end to, to, to point out the reality that if we do do that, what I just challenged all of us to do, if we really do that, if we really stop walking on eggshells, if we come out and we're just be Christian in the world, that is going to ramp things up. Guaranteed. It's not just going to be Snyder marked, but there will be more uh, and, and more pronounced persecution in our lives. If the, the more we stand as witnesses in the world, the more the world will try to silence us. And that's what Jesus is saying here at this last point. But the reality, the reality is this, is that, that even, though it, even though we know that's true, that's why we are in the world. That's why we're here. Do you ever wonder why or ever like fantasize about wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if you came to faith and God just kills you immediately? Or you hooked it up somehow in the course of election that you would like come to faith. You'd be like, wow, I really believe Jesus is real. And then that day, bam, you get hit by a bus. Nobody knows. You're out. You know? What's well, just me? <laughs> I've talked to some of you about this. Come on now. I mean, you can just go home. Bang, you're in heaven. Wouldn't it be safer? Why expose us to all these temptations? Why put us through all this trouble? You can just take us home right away. Bang, be over, done. It'd be all, it'd be all good. And um, the reality is God leaves us here to be his witnesses in the world. That's why we are here to witness to those. Here's the hard part. To witness to those who are being saved and the hard part is to also being a witness to those who are refusing salvation as fair warning. When Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have any sin. He's not saying that they would have been sinless before that, but he's saying now they have absolutely no excuse I came and spoke the words, undeniable words of God to them, and they refused. They have no excuse for their guilt. And the same thing, I did miracles to prove that they were true. 
so that they would know that my words were verified by the miraculous power that could only come from God. They rejected me. They rejected my father. They have no excuse for their guilt. And so the reality of our lives here on earth is that we are serving in both of those capacities. We are the aroma of life to one. We are the aroma of death to another. There's no neutral encounter with the word of God. There's no neutral encounter with the spirit of God working through his people. It is either bringing salvation or it is bringing condemnation. It is putting their guilt upon them in an unexcusable manner. And that is a heavy thing to know, but it's true. The good news for us is that we don't know who that is, right? So we can be expectant and hope and realize that our witness in the world has, is, is, it very well could be God using us in that moment as a channel of his power to reach and to bring people in and to bring people to himself. And so God is leaving us here on purpose. You are a signpost, a neon light, a marker, a pointer sign. Wherever God has placed you in your little section of the world, that's on purpose. God has purposely, Paul says in Acts 17, put you exactly where you are to be a witness within the network of people that you know, friends, relatives, workers, neighbors, associates, to be that witness. And it means that you will be hated. No getting around that. There's an old adage that says, old adage that says, sometimes you have to love someone enough to let them hate you. You know what that means? It means sometimes, um, you know, you know it with raising kids, you know it, we know it from, you know, people that are caught up in super sinful behavior. Sometimes you just have to tell people the truth, even though they don't want to hear it. And they're going to hate you for it. But is that loving to tell them the truth or not? What if you, if you didn't tell them the truth, that would not be love. Or if you lied to them. Yeah, you'll be happy doing that. Even though the experience of everyone that we, you know, you know is, says that that way ends up in, in abject despair and emptiness. They may have all their hopes set on this thing is going to make it okay. And you have to tell them, no, it won't. It's not. It's going to make it worse. I know. <laughs> I did it for 20 years. It was awful. No! And they hate you for it. But we have a responsibility as witnesses. What this is saying is we have a responsibility to be witnesses in the world and to love people enough to allow them to hate us and continue to love them while they're hating us. And if we fail to do that, what that says about us as a church what this says about churches that have caved to social pressure, what it says about us if we fail to do that, when the church is squeezing us in on, to accept its values on gender and sexual ethics and morality, and when the, cave, when, the, in the when churches, they just can't take it anymore and they collapse in, what that means ultimately when we do that is that we care more about being loved than we do about loving other people. Because love is costly. You know, when Jesus 
tells us that we'll pick up our cross daily. We just sang before the sermon, Jesus, I my cross have taken. And there's this first half of this verse. It says, man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, heaven will bring me sweeter rest. What they're saying is, yeah, short term, it's going to be hard. People are going to hate you. There's a lot of blessing and beauty in it too. But there's going to be, tempt- there's going to be temptation, struggle, trial, persecution on us, big or small. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we get something much better. God is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't first done for us. You know, any time Jesus could have just said, no, I'm done. No more persecution. I'm out of here. You guys, done with it. But he endured it. Jesus endured more persecution than we have. Writer of Hebrews says, you have not yet resisted to the point of blood. <laughs> Jesus has endured more persecution for us on our behalf so that he might win us and win our salvation and bring us, he voluntarily went through it so that he could secure for us a real safety. That's the thing. We think we can dilute the gospel, hide behind progressive language, uh, be a secret Christian, do this, do that, and that is going to make us safe in this world. But I got news for you. Trust me when I tell you the world is not safe. Even if you do all that, The world is so unsafe, you don't even want to know how dangerous it is. But Jesus has endured persecution on our behalf to the point of death, to the point of death on the cross, so that he could bring us to real safety. Listen to what he says, even in this verse. You are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world. That can't mean what it says, right? (laughs) Jesus, were, Jesus chose us out of the world. It was his choice. It was his decision to bring us to him. He says, and he also promises in here that he, all of this is to keep us from falling away. He promises to keep us from falling away. And what that means is, ultimately for that, what that means is that you're already safe. You're already safe. The safest place for any of us to be is right in the center of God's will. Right in the center of where he would have us be. Because his protection over us is really the only safety we can have in this life. And what he promises us is that after this, he'll bring us into safety that no one can ever touch. The world can never ever take away. And we'll be okay for real forever. Amen? Amen. Okay. Since persecution is the norm for the faithful church, let's stop trying so hard to belong to the world and live for God instead. Father, we thank you for your amazing blessings to us and your word. We thank you for your spirit, which promises to strengthen us and empower us and to make us the unbelievable reality of of being your chosen vessels 
to speak truth into the world, to bring life to people. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to take that seriously, that that is our privilege. We've been given the opportunity to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, help us remember that the one thing in heaven we won't be able to do is share our faith because it'll be too late. And so help us to make every opportunity every opportunity count here and now, Lord. We pray, I pray for all of us that we would be sharing our faith, that we would be witnesses in what we say and what we do, and that you, Lord, by your good providence, by your calling, that you would bring life to this church, new life, new people through us into your kingdom, that we would see a thousand people come to faith in your name, Lord. We thank you and we thank you ahead of time for the truth of this. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.